I was at a missions conference, and the speaker said something I've never forgotten. I've heard it a number of times since then, but that first time of hearing something, and it struck my ears as so fresh and so relevant. The speaker said this, you are either the missionary or the mission field. There's no in-between. And with that thought, let us consider the mission field. We'll be speaking today about a missionary manual. When you read this book, in a very particular, when you read the Apostle Paul's writings, even more particularly in his pastoral epistles, those books he wrote to Timothy and Titus, what you're really reading is a missionary manual, instructions for serving in your mission field. At that same conference, as I was walking out of the auditorium and then out of the building above the doors where an exit sign was, was a big banner that said, you are now entering your mission field. And that's what we want to consider on this final Sunday of Missions Month. I would like to consider Missions Month a missions revival. I like the idea that the giving toward missions projects is extended into November, going up to Thanksgiving. I would like to have the idea or think that the idea of, I am in church and we're reading the missions manual, and I will be exiting, and as I do so, I'm entering my mission field, would not be something that's just a month or for a season of the year or in another setting at a conference, but that it's a mindset that every single one of us has. The expression mission field has become so common to us in the church, an expression we say all the time that sometimes it loses its meaning or it loses its impact. And so it just rolls off the tongue. Oh, what's your mission field? Oh, they're to Costa Rica. They're to Ecuador. They're to the Samoan Islands. And we just say the phrase and sometimes it conjures up images or provokes thoughts that are removed from the heart of what it's about. I think of a mission field I think that little video played on that because in the very opening scene they showed the bottom of some palm tree fronds and said the mission field and they had the sound of nature and it seemed like exotic and and foreign and somewhere overseas where they speak a different language and wear different clothing and you think about geography and culture rather than the heart of what the mission field really is. We might think of mission field and think of a bucolic scene uh, of something like on that banner over there, the harvest is plentiful. We might think of when we're on a road trip and we pass farmland, especially those of us who didn't grow up around that. I was a suburban kid in Hamilton Square off of Nottingham Way. I didn't think much about farming, even though so much of our state is farmland. I didn't grow up that way. Corn came from a can on a shelf. And so when we drove and we went by cornfields, oh, how quaint. I would encourage you not to just think of the term mission field as some exotic scene or some bucolic 
beauty you see on a trip, but rather remember it in its context. See, agrarian imagery was common in the, in the Bible and Bible days, so many metaphors, many examples would be brought up. So we hear of sowing and reaping and the harvest and the field and the mission field. But remember the context, who brought it up? It was the greatest missionary ever. If a missionary is one who travels to a different place, he traveled the farthest. If a missionary is someone who sacrifices things for the cause of the gospel, our greatest missionary ever was the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is he in the context of going through Samaria. It was he in the context of being weary with his journey and sitting at the well. It was he in that situation that coined the phrase that we're so familiar with. Don't say there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. He was saying, look at the people. The field is the people. And when you enter your mission field, it's to a people. And so certainly if you're going to be in a particular area of geography, you're going to study things about the culture and the geography and a lot of the practicals. And you'll do what missionaries call a survey trip and go figure out how much it costs. Can you get milk? Does milk come in big plastic jugs or does it come in little cardboard boxes, which really isn't milk, but it's all you have and those kind of things? You, you might learn about that, but the field is the people. And when Jesus used that and he said, look to the fields, he was in a context where he was absolutely on mission. Even though he was fatigued, even though his closest followers were on a different wavelength, he was there for a purpose. In fact, the Bible says he must needs go through Samaria. He had an appointment. There was a divine appointment. There was a person who needed to hear about the gospel and he would cross every cultural barrier. How is it that you, a Jew, speaks with me, a woman of Samaria? He would cross gender barriers, social barriers, everything you can imagine because he saw every person as part of the mission field. And you know, he asked her for something to drink. She didn't realize that he had a drink that she knew not of to give her living waters. And then when his followers came back with food, because they had gone to get food and came back, he said to them, I have food, meat to eat that you know not of. And so those who were closest to him and those to whom he was reaching, both didn't get it. And needed the master missionary himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reveal that to them. How's your field looking? How's your area of influence? How's your place of activity? How's your classroom? How's your workplace? How's your home? How's your neighborhood looking? Because Jesus was saying to them, look, lift up your eyes and look. Don't neglect the field. Don't say, well, there's four more months until the harvest. We can get busy later. He said, see your field. In American Samoa, where our first church plant is, there are two main villages. One is Tafuna and the other is Pango Pango. 
And it's about a 45-minute ride along a, a windy coast to get from the one to the other. And so we were starting our first church plant in the village of Tafuna, but, but had people who had come from the other side of the island, and we were looking for a place in the middle, and I saw a place that looked perfect. There was a, a store, a big store, huge to us. To you, it was tiny. It was about the size of a Wawa or a 7-Eleven. But to us, it was the store about halfway in between Avena Brothers And everybody went to Avena Brothers because they had more stuff. They didn't just have, look through a window and I'll take that and I'll take that. You can actually walk down an aisle. They had three whole aisles. And they had a back section with a little freezer. And that was the store to go to. And there was a piece of land right next to it with this great house. It looked perfect, and it was empty, and it was empty, and it was empty, and I drive by it, and I started thinking, that would be a great place to get out of our living room and have a place that's somewhere in the middle where people could come to. And so I went to them at Avaina Brothers, and I asked them, I'm interested in that house. Would you be willing to rent it? But you know what was going on in that family, because land is communal in the Samoan Islands. It's very hard to find what's called freehold land that you could purchase. It's what we ended up doing later in a different place, because we couldn't get that place. Because the Aveina brothers, the next generation, were warring between themselves, and the one side built the house thinking they would move in there, and the other side stopped them, and they had a dispute over the land, and it just never got settled. And over the years, as we finally did buy land and build a building, and uh, the church started to grow in that site, every time I would drive to the other side, I would go past that house, and it was falling more and more into decay. And the land around it, for American Samo, it was a good piece of land, just started growing over more and more. It was just neglected because neither side wanted anything to do with it anymore. And I always thought, what a waste. What a waste of an opportunity. That place could have been used for God's glory. That place could have been used for people to come and sit under the hearing of the gospel to get built up and to be sent into their mission field. It was a place of neglect. And in just a couple of moments, when we get into 2 Timothy chapter 3, I hope that we'll be stirred by the idea that there is a world that needs to be reached and we cannot have neglect. In Proverbs chapter 24, starting in verse 30, it speaks of such a thing, a place that's neglected. I went by the field of the slothful or the sluggard. And by the vineyard of the man, void of understanding, and lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face of it, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well, and received instruction. I urge you to consider with me for the moments that follow as we're together What is the condition of my field? I pray, my prayer is that as you walk out and you look at the exit sign, it'll trigger in your mind, it's exit, but it's also entrance. I'm exiting here, but you are now entering your 
mission field. You've heard it said many a time, but has it sunk in that you can reach people none of us pastors can reach? You're in places we don't get to. Do you see, does the teacher see her classroom as her mission field? Does the person in the marketplace, does the person out there working see their work site as their mission field? As a place where they can be reaching people, where God has placed them, where God has given them strength and ability to serve in some capacity, to place them in a field that is ready for the harvest. Oh, please see it that way. The problem is laborers are lacking. Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Therefore he said unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore that the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers. If the Lord Jesus Christ was the greatest missionary ever, and he was, I don't believe there would be anyone who would doubt that the second greatest was the Apostle Paul. Once an enemy of Christ, the Bible says he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter, and he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, and being knocked to the ground and blinded, he finally saw, and he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Oh, that God would get us to that place, that it wouldn't take us being knocked to the ground and blinded and led about by some other person for three days, that it wouldn't take all of that in our lives for us to reach that same conclusion and say, Lord, what would thou have me to do? Because if we can just get a hold of that one thing, the Apostle Paul, when he put himself in that place, totally surrendered to who the Lord Jesus Christ was and what the Great Commission was all about and the fact that we all need to be on mission, perceiving that we are entering our mission field every day in every place that we go. That's what happened with the Apostle Paul, and he planted churches everywhere, and he built up leaders, he trained people, he spread the gospel, he established churches, he moved to the next place, to one place, to another. It didn't didn't matter if they were uh, the most erudite of Athens. He would stand up and preach the gospel wherever he went. Oh, that there would be more of us who would say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Because I'm either the missionary, or I'm the mission field and someone needs to reach me, which is it? And so the Apostle Paul, when he was writing, especially in his pastoral epistles, as I said, I repeat, it's like a missionary manual. It's like a book to go look to, to get knowledge. And in the chapter that we find ourselves, we read the whole chapter together in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy is a wonderful book. It's the last time the Apostle Paul would take that pen writing inspired words. It's his final words to us. It's such a tender book. In the beginning of 2 Timothy, we read right in the second verse of the first chapter, to Timothy, my beloved son. A couple verses later, he speaks of Timothy's upbringing and he names his grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice. He calls them by name and records under inspiration of the Holy Spirit their name who had raised up Timothy to have an unfeigned faith. 
He was mindful of Timothy's tears. So it's such a tender book in that way. Paul's last letter that he would write shows such a tender heart he had. At the same time, it's a tough book. In the next verse, he would say to Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, I think every one of us remembers in the final chapter, he would say, I'm ready to be offered. I'm ready to be poured out finally as a drink offering to the Lord. The time of my departure is at hand. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, but not to me only, to all who love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. I fought a good fight, he said. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. It's a book that's both tender and tough, and he's writing. And now let's see it through this lens as we get to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And there are three things I find as I look at this chapter. There are three lists. The first list is remarkable in its breadth. 25 descriptions in the first nine verses. He said, here's your field. You heard about it even as Pastor Walker prayed. He was on the exact same wavelength as he saw the diagnosis of the times in which Timothy lived and the times that were predicted to come that they would only get worse and become more fully that. If Paul was writing in the time of Nero and the ferocity that was existed in those times, he was writing as well about the very century in which we live. And it will get more and more so. So we see that list. Then we see a second list later in the chapter. Starting in verse 10. He's going to give another list that we'll look at briefly this morning. Time won't allow us to dig too deep. And then he gives a final list in the third little section about the scriptures. It's profitable for. And he names four things. And so let's consider the first of those lists as we look into our manual Verse 1 tells us of difficult times, perilous times. They're difficult and dangerous times. The word is kalipos, hard to bear, difficult, troublesome, dangerous, harsh, fierce, savage. And so the Apostle Paul is writing as the veteran missionary. I always loved going to the different missions conferences churches would have. And they might have four or five different missionary families. And usually they'd have a few new ones right out of Bible college with their missions major, ready to go take on the world with all their idealism. And then they'd always have a couple veteran missionaries. And I've kind of been on that side and started moving toward this side. But even in the very beginning, I always loved the veteran missionaries. I went over to them. I hung out with them. I tried to talk much less than they did and hear from them and ask questions because they had things that were tried and true. They'd been on the field. Uh, They had experiences to share. And usually I noticed that the veteran missionaries were a little bit more quiet than the new ones who were coming into it. And I loved the youthful idealism too. But I loved to draw. The Apostle Paul here is the veteran missionary whom God had used in incredible ways. And he's writing to one of the younger ones, to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, you first 
must know about your field. The first thing every missionary needs to know, what we all need to know before we exit this building and say, I'm now entering my mission field, what we all must know is that these are perilous times. To know how perilous they are. To recognize the conditions in the field. See, if a missionary thinks he's going out, and in this sense, you're either the missionary or you're the mission field, the way I've framed this today. Every one of us needs to realize when we go out to share the gospel, it's not that we're some great thing, great person doing this great thing. We're just servants obeying the command of our master and going out there, and we need not expect to be thanked for it. I remember when we were inviting people and Uh, Altoona, Pennsylvania and Duncansville, Pennsylvania to come out to a a conference that was about to be held and we were going house to house and we got to one house. My middle son Joe was with me and a couple others. He was very young at that time and we got to an elderly lady. When she opened the door, I thought, oh my, tea and crumpets. And I said, good evening, ma'am. We just wanted to stop by to invite you to. And she saw that thing and she grabbed it out of my hand and she crumpled it and she threw it down. And a string of words came out of her mouth that I didn't think little old ladies could say. And my son was like. And she crumpled that thing, threw it to the ground, cursing away, slammed the door in our face. And we went to the next house and to the next house. If we think we're going to go into the mission field to share the gospel and it's going to be a piece of cake and it's going to make us feel good, like we're good little Baptists or we're good little Christians and we're going to go share the gospel, the harsh reality is that the field out there is difficult and it's dangerous. It's a dangerous world. It's dangerous for babies in the womb. It's dangerous for children in the classroom. It's dangerous for people confused about gender. We can talk about all those kind of dangers and societal dangers that exist out there. And I can give an exhaustive list of that. You know what's dangerous about it is the mindset of the people. And so when you look at this list of 25 words. May I encourage you this morning to look at it in two different ways. First of all, I'm going to look at this to remind myself of the field in which God has placed me. And so that I realize I'm not going to be met with joy that I may be reviled, persecuted, I may be uh, endure afflictions and insults and many things like that, but the Lord has called me to serve in that field. And number two, I will study that list to stay as far as possible. I want a huge margin between me and that. And so I I couldn't go through the 25, so we're going to focus on a couple of them, but just to shoot them off, lovers of their own selves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, blasphemers or abusive, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, heartless, not having natural affections, unappeasable, truce breakers, false accusers or slanderous, without self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, High-minded, lovers of pleasure more than of God. I'm only on verse 4, and I'm already up to 18. One after another after another. And so it would behoove us what we cannot do in a sermon in a short period of time. But what every individual can do in study is to say, I'm going to go through each one of those and say, Oh, Lord, 
Help me, if I'm the missionary going into the field, that there wouldn't be an ounce of that in me. Because that's how you describe the lost. That's how you describe the ones needing the gospel. Let it never be a description of the person who has received the gospel, who has turned from their sin and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I would just like to point out out of the list of 25, and I didn't go down to the others in verses 5 to 9, uh, forever learning, never able to come to the truth. They resist the truth. They're corrupt minds. They're reprobate or disqualified concerning the faith. We didn't even try to unpackage them. But just for a couple minutes, take the four lovers in that. Lovers of self. Psychologists call that narcissism. In psychology, it's a personality type. Someone who is selfish, who is self-centered. When you're talking about someone who has a narcissistic type of personality, you're talking about someone who needs admiration. They're a person with a sense of entitlement. They're a person with a lack of empathy for others. They need admiration, and they're very put off by criticism. Number one, then let it never be us. You remember the old Greek mythology and then Ovid in Roman days added a, a different twist to it when he combined the myth of uh, Narcissus and Echo and he put them together. You remember the story, Narcissus was the one who, whose father was a god and mother was a nymph. Isn't it great to come to church and talk about Greek myths? There you go. Very... Uh, unlikely place to be unpackaging this a little. But this child of theirs was so beautiful and so attractive that anyone who saw him immediately loved him. And he wasn't interested in them. So you had people pining away in heartache because they were attracted and loved him and he would never return it. And Nemesis, the god of retribution, didn't like it. I don't know how you could have all these different gods because God is the supreme one. But anyway, he didn't like it, so he said, I'm going to get Narcissus back. I'm going to allow him to go to the water spring to drink, and he's going to see his reflection and fall in love with himself and see what happens. And depending on which one of those you're reading, he's so attracted to his reflection, he just stays there for the rest of his life and pines away and dies. And a daffodil type of flower called the Narcissus flower grows in a place or another one where he saw it and he wanted so much to get to it that came to his death and so from that we get the idea of narcissism of lovers of self church does that not describe society around us does that not describe the person who does not love God see you must love God supremely before you can love others sacrificially. We hear that a lot here. As we look at this, we realize, wow, this one description right from the beginning of the list says a lot. Oh, Lord, help me to have a love for you that is so great that it will lift my eyes to the fields that I will have a love for others, even when they're at their most unlovable. 
And sometimes, yes, that might have to even be a tough love, but let it be motivated by love because love of self, uh, the self-absorption brings no satisfaction. It brings ultimately emptiness. And so we see that the next one we see is the lovers of money. Question number one, what kind of lover am I? Am I a lover of self? Am I a lover of money, covetous? And so if in the one hand we have narcissism that characterizes our field at large today, do you know what country tops the list of being diagnosed with narcissists? The United States of America. As I was reading and trying to look at this in different cultures, that's what I found out sad. Lovers of self and lovers of money. Narcissism and then materialism. With narcissism, it's interesting because in psychology, it's a personality type. But in psychiatry, it refers to someone being born and not being able to distinguish self from objects and others around them. And the truth is, every baby is born a total narcissist. No baby is born with thought of others. In fact, part of the cognitive and moral development of a child is learning to differentiate that. The little child says, you can't see me. Because they have not learned yet to distinguish between self and others. In psychiatry, that's a normal state for a baby. But for an adult, it's considered a psychiatric disorder that needs treatment. One of the first things a child will say is, my. Boy, they learn my and mine real fast. They seem to learn no, but not to obey it, to say it to you. They know that, no, 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 mine, 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 mine. They seem to say that very quickly. And we have a society filled with people who say, mine, 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 mine. And so narcissism leads right into materialism. Oh, Lord, help me to stay far from that in my own life and my relationship with you. And help me to realize that's the danger I'm dealing with in the field. I'm trying to tell them about a God who loves them and a Savior who died for them. And they're so wrapped up in self. They have a love of self. They have a love of stuff, of materialism. My goodness, I want to say a, lot, a whole lot about that. But time prevents it. Materialism is a philosophical system that led to Marxism. It was, by, it was used by Engels. It's the idea that everything is material and there will be a material explanation for everything, even will and conscience. That's the mindset. And in time, you may believe in that spiritual stuff, but you know we know in time, as we learn more about science, we'll figure out how the mind, how the will, and how all that is just a result of material, physical processes, and there's nothing greater. We reject the supernatural. And then lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, lovers of pleasure, <clears throat> lover of self, philautos, philatos, Lovers of money, Phil Arguri, I think it is. It's a different form of the word you find in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all evil. And then you get to Philodonus. And in that word is the word where we get hedonism. Lovers of pleasure. 
I know we're doing a little history here, but as we study the history, we learn about the present. We learn from that and say, these are the people God has called me to reach out to. Lovers of pleasure. Hedonism is the idea that the greatest good, the singular good, is the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It was already a fully developed philosophy by the time the Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy. Aristippus, in uh, 350 years before Christ was born, was developing this philosophy. He was a disciple of Socrates. And he started to say the greatest pleasure, in fact, to delay gratification is wrong. It's not good. Because we're born to seek pleasure and to avoid pain. And that is a good in and of itself. The meaning of life is found in the pursuit of pleasure and avoidance of pain. Epicurus would follow him in the next century and develop the thought even further. This is what Aristippus said. The art of life lies in taking pleasures as they pass. And the keenest pleasures are not intellectual, nor are they always moral. He also said this, the vice is not in going into the bordello, it's in not coming out. That was the philosophy, that was the mindset that he was looking at. Let's see if we could move forward in our time as we do this. These are the things you're dealing with in the field. People who are narcissistic, who are materialistic, who are hedonistic, and yet God can reach every one of them. God is at work, opening eyes, opening hearts to receive the gospel. And he said, our job as missionaries is to go out there and tell them. Before entering your mission field, understand this. It's dangerous and it's difficult. Prepare yourself well. Read your missions manual. The other two I will do very quickly. The second thing, before entering your mission field, you need to know how powerful your testimony is. Look at it very quickly with me, please, in verse 10. This is what the uh, veteran missionary says to Timothy. Timothy, but thou. You've just heard 25 things about them, but you. Let's turn it, but you have learned something else. You know something else. But thou hast fully known. You, however, have followed. You followed my teaching or my doctrine, my manner of life. Please take the nine of these and realize this. I cannot unpackage them. But understand this. Your testimony is powerful. Keep it clean. It's a lot more than just one thing or two things. Paul was able to say the veteran missionary who was about to take his last breath, who was about to put the pen that he wrote those inspired words down for the final time, and he said he was able to say, oh, Lord, that we would be able to say to someone that we've been discipling and training, but you have fully known, number one, my doctrine. You've known what I teach. You have fully known my way of living, my manner. Follow them. Take the nine of them and say, if someone were to examine my life and uh, put a grid there and list the nine out and follow me, how would my testimony stand? He says, you've known what I've taught. You've known my conduct. You've known my aim in life, my purpose. If someone were to follow you around for a week 
and then have to draw a conclusion of what is his or her purpose in life. What would their conclusion be? To have fun? To work hard to make money? To what? The Apostle Paul was able to say, see, your testimony is powerful. Let it be that if someone followed you around one thing, they would know your doctrine because you're sharing from what you've learned from the word of God. You're sharing truth. And that they would know your conduct. That they would know your aim in life. That they would know your faith. That they would know the last ones going on your patience and your love, your steadfastness, that they would know in verses 11 and 12 how you handled persecutions and afflictions. And by that, they would be so sure of your testimony. And then it goes on in verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. And I close with this. Before entering your mission field, you need to know how profitable your Bible is. And that's the, fourth, the third list. It's a short list. We talk about it all the time. But when you go into your mission field, go with an understanding of the perils that await you, the power of your testimony, and the certainty of how profitable this is. The, the third list starts with the same thing as the second list. But Timothy, verse 10, you have known my doctrine or my teaching. This book is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Before you go to your mission field, before you walk out and it says you are entering your mission field, make sure you're absolutely committed to this book, that you're studying it, that you're learning it, that every service and every opportunity and every small group and every discipleship group and every opportunity you can find to study it, you are, because this is profitable. This is what will be effective on the field. That's why we need Gideons and other groups. That's why we have the Samoan Bible Project, village to village and house to house. Before you go to the mission field, you need to know how perilous the field is and endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ. You need to know how powerful your testimony is and have a desire and hunger after righteousness. And you need to know how profitable, useful this book is. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would indeed stir our hearts in this missions month. Stir us to the point that we're changed in how we view the world. And something as simple as how we view the exit sign when we leave the building. And that you would use us as laborers for the fields are ripe to harvest. I pray for your blessing on this church and for workers to fill the fields for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.